0: Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Jeff Horwitz, the Chief Operating Officer of Safe Project, which is a nonprofit focused on addressing the opioid epidemic here in the United States. The impetus for this episode was an article I read on Thursday morning reporting a threefold increase in the number of opioid overdoses in York County between January and March of this year. A threefold increase. It dawned on me then that this pandemic represents the worst case scenario for anyone who is struggling or has struggled with addiction. Social isolation, the inability to seek in-person treatment, unemployment, economic vulnerability, homelessness, limited admission to rehab facilities. All of these pandemic hardships represent a recipe for disaster for those suffering from the disease of addiction. The two great epidemics of our time are intersecting in deadly ways, and it's manifesting itself in several varieties. Over the past month, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has reported a nearly 900% increase in calls to its disaster distress helpline. The stigma and discrimination associated with addiction is likewise being amplified as reports have surfaced of police departments across the country refusing to offer naloxone to patients who have overdosed on the pretext that it is too dangerous to do so because that person might wake up coughing and potentially release coronavirus droplets onto the police officers. This issue is particularly important to me because I've seen three of my former high school teammates pass away from opioid addiction. I've watched families suffer from intense despair watching their loved ones battle this disease. I've seen how social stigmas, economic inequality, and inadequate healthcare only make the opioid problem worse, and that's especially true here in Pennsylvania, which led the country in 2017 in the number of drug-induced deaths, most of them caused by opioids. In this episode, Jeff and I discuss the scale of the opioid epidemic in the United States what his organization, Safe Project, is doing to address it, and what the COVID-19 pandemic means for addiction going forward. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the opioid crisis in the United States was perhaps the worst drug crisis in American history. Given what's happened over the past three months, that crisis is only going to get worse. It's our job, as neighbors, as friends, and as citizens, to reach out to those who may be struggling with addiction and lend them a hand, to be a source of connection, to be a source of hope, and to do what we can to make sure that everybody gets through this pandemic together. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Jeff Horwitz. All right, I'm here with Jeff Horwitz. Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hey, Tom, thanks for having
0: me. This is a conversation that uh, I texted you about this morning because I thought it was that important um, which is opioid addiction during a pandemic uh, and your background I think gives you the expertise on this in a way that not many people would have insights to. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your work in this space?
1: Uh, certainly, Tom, it's actually relatively new space for me. I only entered this arena about two and a half years ago. Uh, I was, uh, I got out of college and decided that I wanted to be a lawyer like you when I grew up. Uh, and then I decided, uh, I joined the Navy. So I retired from the Navy in 2014, did some work as a fundraiser at Penn State. And in the process of trying to find out what I really want to do in my life, I, uh, actually, um, found a husband and wife who had lost their son to an accidental overdose and asked me to come along and help them build a new nonprofit. And so I've been operating as the chief operating officer for the SAFE project for about two and a half years as uh, we fight a mission, uh, which is their mission to save a life every single day. And
0: that's what we do. It's amazing work. And I think you and I have talked about this at length before. It really begins with the just basic understanding that Addiction is a disease, and uh, it's something that maybe isn't intuitive at first. But to really grapple with this issue and overcome it, I think that's a starting point for where we have to uh, frame the conversation. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and and explain why this is such an important aspect of this conversation?
1: Uh, it's it's probably the most essential aspect uh, of the conversation, and is one that to some degree we've all been raised to not accept Uh, the stigma uh, is pretty large to believe that someone who has an addiction problem has made a personal decision or a personal choice uh, and that they are making bad decisions and we should try to help them out to a point but if they continue in their addiction it's their own it's their own decision and um, Although we've been led to believe that, whether it's alcoholism or drug use, uh, the truth is we know now that addiction is a disease. And the CDC has said that. uh, SAMHSA has said that. Physicians have said that. I believe the American Medical Association has gone on the record to say that. We know that addiction is a disease. And because it's a disease, um, we can't just shame people to stop taking drugs or stop drinking alcohol, we really have to find a way to get folks um, the support they need With if there's a story within the story that's creating that addiction um, or leading to that addiction or to try to cut that off as best we can by prevention, by treatment and recovery. And um, If you don't do that, you'll always have a problem. You just can't stop or tell someone to stop. It's a disease and you've got to take care of the disease.
0: And this was a, you know, this was a national emergency uh, President Trump declared it over a year ago. And even here in Pennsylvania, um, one of the things I talk often about on the campaign trail is how Pennsylvania in 2017 led the country in the number of premature uh, drug overdoses. Um, and a significant portion of those were caused by opioids. Um, can you expand a little bit about uh, just the sheer scope and magnitude of the opioid crisis in, in the United States and Um, You know, it's perhaps taken a backseat in terms of our focus right now, but nonetheless remains a major, major issue. But can you tell us a little bit about how broad this is right now?
1: Tom, I I think that uh, people just let this sort of go by and they don't appreciate how significant this is. We are quite concerned about the COVID crisis right now. And to date, I think I checked this morning, and to date in the state of Pennsylvania, there were about 1,400 deaths to COVID. In uh, 2017, uh, there were about 5,300 overdose deaths in in the state of Pennsylvania, and from a larger scale, from a national scale, uh, we was about 70,000 Americans into an overdose. Um, that's 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 huge. I mean, to date, in the COVID crisis alone, I think we are were, we're even below 50,000. Now, that's not to understate the circumstances of COVID but it uh to a large degree addiction is something that we can work on, something that we can prevent and with the proper treatment and recovery services something these are deaths we can prevent. But what's probably much larger than the death rate is the fact that there are non-fatal overdoses out there all the time. And so I saw in the news today and that's what started our conversation was um was your county's rise in deaths of threefold just over covid alone. The reality is, if you look elsewhere, you're going to see that there are overdoses that have been pretty significant. Uh, we work with the city of St. Louis on their task force, and just this morning we, they had a task force meeting. and in, in last year, from January to March, they had non fatal overdose of they had 571 non fatal overdoses. Uh, but this year, with everyone in isolation, those three months they're up to 668. So it's over a hundred people. Or about a hundred people more over a three-month period of time. Um, it, it's just it's it's really tragic because this is something we can take care of.
0: What would you point to is um, obviously that the numbers are going to continue to roll out. Here we're only in the infancy of the pandemic, but you know isolation is uh, something that the whole country is doing. But to confine someone who has an addiction to mandated isolation would seem to me to only augment the uh, tendencies that they already have. Is that um, a major concern right now?
1: It absolutely is. For those that are in the addiction field, um, they will say the opposite of addiction is actually connection. Uh, The important success in uh, treatment is the recovery processes. And so if I was suffering from a drug addiction and went to treatment, and I came out of treatment and went to the same circumstances that I had beforehand, whether it was the same uh, neighborhood where there was a drug problem, the same lack of a job, the same other support mechanisms, I would probably fail. And that's why uh, you'll see the success of folks that go to recovery houses or get some recovery support supports or what we would call recovery capital. And the supports of friends, the supports of other people in recovery are the ones that are really going to help you and help me succeed as I'm going out of treatment and in through recovery. And so when you're in isolation, there's uh, not a lot you can do. So isolation is really a risk for two categories. It's a risk for those that are in recovery now because they don't get the recovery supports that they would get elsewhere. In fact, to a large degree, they're shunned. Uh, it was interesting, about three weeks ago, I saw an article in the Washington Post that talked about the struggle that folks that are in recovery are having because they don't have recovery meetings that they can go to face-to-face. They don't, to a large degree, have jobs that they can go to because they might have lost their jobs. And they don't have a lot of the other things that would be helpful for them to be successful in recovery. And those folks uh, are struggling, and the, some of the comments in the, in the comments section of the Washington Post article was well what are you saying these addicts that have made bad decisions should should uh, take our attention rather than COVID and the answer is again it's a disease and what we need to do is find ways to support them so that they're successful and they don't reoccur or have relapse and the second category of folks are folks that might have addictive behaviors or might be in addiction but haven't gone through treatment or not in a recovery mode and they're isolated. They can't do the day-to-day things that they have done perhaps to escape from those addictive behaviors. And so they are there. The addictive behaviors are there. And what we do know is um, there's a lot of uh, medications uh, around Uh, We do know that uh, alcohol is prevalent in a lot of areas uh, and not in the state of Pennsylvania, at least not until uh, uh, I think at the end of this week. Uh, And that's where people turn to uh, and that's where they get themselves into trouble. And that's where the addiction disease gets percolated. uh, And with more isolation, it's just going to continue to get worse.
0: One of the things that you and I talked about when we first really did a deep dive on this issue was how uh, I believe it was 70 percent. Of opioid addiction stem from a lawful prescription. And so the, the takeaway there is that this is not a criminal justice issue. It's, it's a public health issue. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that and why that plays such a critical role in, in the ultimate manifestation of addiction itself?
1: You bet. Um, you know, when I was growing up, if you were a heroin user, that was sort of, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, that's that's really amazing. It's terrible. You, it was unheard of. It was unprecedented. Uh, but what we do know now is about 70 to 75 percent of all heroin users today started with an overuse or an inappropriate use of prescription drugs. And I don't have to get into the whole discussion about, um, you know, Purdue Pharmaceuticals or the overprescribing to take care of chronic pain. We all know those stories, but that's a good source of it. But another good source to know of is and to be aware of is that the overprescription still exists to a large degree. And we know today that about 70% of all prescriptions are unused and that um, most Americans have a lot of unused prescriptions in their home. Uh, A recent study indicated about one in three Americans have unused prescriptions in their home. And so the thought is, well, that's okay. I'm okay leaving prescriptions in my house. But if you take a look at other studies, that's where the teens get them and that's where other people get them. And we know that most family members get their drug usage or get their first drugs from other family members. And we also know that uh, the numbers are between 50 and 60% of teenagers say that their number one source for drugs. The number one source for drugs from a teenager is where? The family medicine cabinet. Uh, so, uh, so now I'm isolated. I can't do the things I want. I've lost my senior year of, of sports. I've lost uh, my college ap- graduation. I've lost something and um, the opportunity is right there. It's really, it's really tragic that the more we isolate, the more we're placing this category of folks at risk. And as a category of folks that, uh, we as a country are not willing to accept or see, uh, that they're suffering from a
0: disease. What was Safe Project doing, um, pre pandemic to, to address it? I mean, obviously you talk about, I love that line that, uh, connection really is the best medicine for, for addiction. Um, but I know Safe Project had kind of a multifaceted approach a very holistic one, uh, in in trying to help communities and individuals with this. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Safe Project and what their mission is? You bet, of course. So, Safe Project was created by Sandy and Mary Winnefeld uh,
1: when they lost their son to an accidental overdose uh, on his fourth day of college. Uh, their son, Jonathan, had just completed about 17 months of treatment. Uh, he had really turned his life around, and then Sandy and Mary really believed that they had their son back. Uh, They did not at the time appreciate the fact that recovery is something that goes on for life They did not appreciate how hard it was to find a treatment facility. They didn't appreciate really what addiction was Um, and so they were like many other families. They thought their son was cured and as a result, they sent their son away to college where he had already indicated he was going to be an EMT and he was excited to, to try to help those uh, who couldn't help themselves with the sobriety that he had found. All of those things are probably not very unusual, but in our case, Sandy and Mary Winnefeld are pretty... Uh, well-together people. Sandy was the former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the number two in the uniform service um, in the Department of Defense. And Mary is a very active member, uh, family member uh, from, for, from military support, but she's also on multiple boards. So this is a smart family, a well-connected family, and they struggled and they lost their son. And what they decided that they had to do was they had to do something to be able to save a life. They had to do something to prevent other families from going through what they went through when they had the means and the ability to really help their son and they lost him. Um, And the difference is in any other case from this case is um, these people are really smart and Sandy Sandy not only a top gun pilot, but is an engineer by training And so while they were sitting in their living room mourning the loss of Jonathan and um, They realized that the best way to deal with this crisis is to deal with it holistically They realized that addiction is a problem and that there are a lot of people doing great work all around the country to attack addiction but they're not doing it together. Um, and so as a result, what Sandy and Mary created was a nonprofit that really said you have to look at six operating lines. And of course, you have know, former military commander, which I'll support wholeheartedly as a retired Navy guy. But he called them lines of operation. And they had six lines of operation that you had to do them all to be successful. And they were family outreach and support so that we can. Tell families lessons learned, be successful, but also to have family out uh, outreach uh, groups available to uh, families that were in need so we could help find those folks. It was public awareness so that we could really attack the stigma. We can make sure that people were aware that addiction was a disease and it's something that we need to help and to address and not something we can ignore. Law enforcement and criminal justice to do exactly what you said before. And that is we can't arrest ourselves out of this situation. We actually have to save lives, revive folks through Narcan if they overdose and get them through treatment and do a warm handoff or to do um, uh, a court practice, a diversion program so that they could be helped. It was also um, emergency response and prescription drugs to uh, not only train people in the use of Narcan, but also to empower patients to talk to their doctors and to talk to their doctors about alternatives and have the doctors look at alternatives to prescription drugs, whether it's yoga, meditation, um, acupuncture, any other means of physical therapy, to try to do that rather than choosing drugs as a solution for the first step. Uh, It was also prevention and to find ways to identify the prevention techniques that are out there that are working in certain areas And to share them and sort of crowdsource them with other areas other arenas So for example Dayton, Ohio was extremely successful at overcoming their opioid problem But you know if I'm here in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I have an opioid problem I don't have time to find out what it was that Dayton, Ohio did that was successful and so we took it upon ourselves to sort of crowdsource that And the last line of operation is treatment and recovery and that's to try to make it possible for folks to find treatment facilities quickly that match their needs and then to get them into recovery and recovery housing or recovery stops. And we took all those six lines of operations and we run them through a series of stakeholders that will help to apply those things. And so we go to communities and what we do in communities is we meet the community where they are. Uh, We can help a community directly with um, some ideas that will crowdsource, with strategic planning, or we could do what I would say is the full Monty, and that's an example of what I was talking about with the city of St. Louis. Missouri's drug overdose death rates had gone up. St. Louis did not have an active task force. So we met, and the mayor of St. Louis and the director of public health at St. Louis created a task force to deal with addiction, and we've got the parties together to do with that. The other stakeholder we go through is collegiate universities or really post-secondary schools we call our safe campus program. The safe campus program deals with all post-secondary education institutions to try to encourage them to do something to address prevention and recovery and we start really at the bare minimum level of saying if we could make students that are in recovery successful, we can overcome the stigma and show that they're the best um, and they could be the best students and the most effective students. Because a university doesn't really care as much about them as we would want them to care about because there are other priorities for a university. Uh, We also do that with veterans because we've discovered that veterans are two times more likely to pass away from an accidental overdose. And so we have a series of programs that we work with with veterans and one of which uh, we're working right now in partnership with the Wounded Warrior Program to teach wellness to veterans. And the last category is we go into workplaces, and we'll go into work offices and businesses and try to make sure that they have HR-friendly rules and do whatever we can to really help them, um, help their employees uh, as they go through problems of opioids, uh, do drug disposal with them, or Narcan. Long answer, but that's what we do.
0: No, and it's amazing work. And one of the things I'd be curious to hear your take on is, is what you've learned about the way we have uh, the type of society we have and how that fuels addiction. You know, I've I've read about how um, young people today tend to be much more lonely. Uh, you know, social media creates this kind of anti-social um, society where um, people tend to be on their own much more often. We have inequality that we haven't really seen since the Gilded Age in terms of the disproportionate uh, amount of wealth between the top 1% and everybody else. You look at numbers from the Great Recession, um, once that really hit full throttle, you have increased numbers in domestic abuse, in crime, uh, in other sorts of familial, uh, violence. You know, stress and loneliness really seem to be the, uh, the driving forces behind a lot of this. Um, do you have any insights on, you know, from just a purely societal standpoint, what some of the aggregating factors are in terms of fueling this, this epidemic?
1: Um, Wow, uh, that's, uh, I, you know, I could speculate to a large degree, and I think based upon what I know, uh, there's a lot of ways to look at it. We do know that since it is a disease, um, uh, it's the entryway. What's the entryway to get to that disease? And, and I think what your analysis is saying, and I think it's true, is that there are more uh, Entry ways now for me to find myself getting into a behavior which would lead to uh, uh, um, That addictive behavior and and I think that's absolutely true I think uh, there's a couple things that you say that are really important to look out for and the first one is in Many cases probably in most of the cases. There's a story before the story of addiction if it's family abuse if it's physical abuse if it's um sexual assault something like that which has led that individual to question and challenge and to look for some um sort of support that way but there's there there's often a story within a story and a lot of the examples you talk about whether it's poverty whether it's abusive behavior um those are all relevant stories within the story that could lead that way and the second is the isolation that our society has created in some degree. whether it's um, isolation because um, we're left alone um, uh, and we don't um, uh, because parents are out working or if it's because we are um, left alone because we're more comfortable there and not dealing with the outside world or we're left alone because for example we're just so enjoying video gaming, right? in the gaming system. But all of those things can fuel them, uh, fuel that on its own. And I think that's absolutely right. You know, one of the things we look at right now is that um, you had a lot of connection if you were a student at school right now, whether you were in high school or whether you're in college away, but you would see your friends all the time. And now you're home. And what are you doing at home? Well, I know when I graduated, God bless my parents, but despite that, the last thing I wanted to do is go home. You couldn't go home anymore, right? So, I isolated myself in my house. Well, nowadays, people are isolating themselves in their house. Their kids are and they're getting on their game system. And that's where they're finding the same comfort friends that they had over in school, but just in a different form. And what we do know is that gaming is kind of a, a dangerous little bullying area sometimes. It's gaming is a nice way for isolation and so we've actually created our own um, uh, campaign right now just on gaming alone just to say Take a pledge not to be a bully and take a pledge to help out a buddy that's also gaming if they're out there gaming and you see that uh, they're getting themselves into an addictive behavior or trouble. We call that our our no shame in your game campaign. And if you want, I'll give you a t-shirt on that
0: too. I'll gladly take a t-shirt. That's really interesting though. So, is there a correlation between um, amount of time spent gaming and likelihood of uh, addictive behavior?
1: I can't I can't talk to that, but I suspect if there's a lot of time gaming, it's probably addictive behavior.
0: Yeah, wow, that's that is fascinating. Um, one of the lessons that I've really adopted in studying this issue more deeply is that recovery isn't a single moment. It's not um, a, a, a day, you know, a twenty four hour cure. You don't just become, uh, you know, healthy when you're going through addiction. It's it's a lifestyle. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that and how important that lifestyle of recovery mindset is for not only people who are struggling with addiction, but families as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's probably uh, one of the most important areas that we talk about and one of the most important areas that we try to focus on. And that is the recovery process. Because if you make it through treatment... And you don't have the connections that you need for recovery. It's all going to be lost and you will, the odds are pretty good that you'll, you'll relapse or that addiction will reoccur. So the first part of that is this is the same mistake that Sandy and Mary made when they thought their son was cured. They saw him back. They said, we have found Jonathan back. But the reality is they didn't see Jonathan back because Jonathan wasn't cured. Jonathan was back to his state that they recognized, but Jonathan was still fighting the demons of addiction that were still there. And in his case, his accidental overdose came when he was doing EMT calls and was walking past an open air market or open heroin market in Denver, Colorado and the brain fights you, and the brain beat him, and beat him down to get back into that, and that started the addictive behavior. So what we do know is that folks that are in recovery need the support of family, friends, and other people in recovery. They need that that support in any way that's possible to make sure that they're successful and that they have alternatives. And if you look at our society today, there's you struggle to find alternatives, you know, whether it's the alcohol commercials, whether it's, um, you're having a happy hour, um, take a look at concerts and you don't see a lot of sober concert events or sober venues. We're working on that right now to do a lot of things like that, but I'd be hard pressed to guarantee that someone who is trying to fight demons of addiction can go to a sporting event alone and not run into a situation where, uh, the temptation is there for the brain, and so we really need to work together and help someone so that they are um, they're connected with someone so they can be successful.
0: Absolutely, and you know this is probably a tough question to answer right now given how we uh, are living our lives. But um, what advice would you have for someone who either you know wh- what they can do to prevent any sort of you know you mentioned you know having these prescription bottles in uh, in bathrooms. Um, whether it's someone who has a friend who is in recovery, whether it's someone who themselves might be uh, in recovery. Um, any advice during this pandemic as to what we can do to look out for our neighbors who are struggling with this?
1: Yeah, I think there's probably two things that come to mind and I'm sure my bosses would yell at me that I only came up with two off the top of my head Um, so I'll take a a, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly be invited back after I get yelled at but two things come to my mind immediately The first one is we need to do everything we can to prevent these problems So I'm sitting at my house right now and others are sitting at their house right now and they're social distancing and they're not going outside and we know Odds are pretty good right now that there are prescription drugs in their medicine cabinet that their children, their spouses, their friends and relatives or someone could break into their house and take. There's no use for those drugs right now. So this first step, I would say, is do what you can to dispose of unused drugs. We know that 70% of the drugs are unused, and we know that one in three people have unused drugs in their medicine cabinet. So I would say the first thing you need to do is get rid of those drugs. Just dispose of those drugs. Now, the question is, how do you dispose of them? It's, 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 it's kind of ironic, but this Saturday was the DEA's scheduled drug disposal day it was national drug take-back day and DEA because they're kind of busy right now with other problems have canceled drug take-back day Um, and I bring that up only because we were concerned about that and we know that if you're sitting at home trying to come up with something to do why don't we get rid of your drugs and so we are working with an individual um, vendor that will do individual take back bags. The company's name is Deterra. And Deterra does individual take-back bags that you could put the drugs that you have in that bag. It's a charcoal solution and more scientific because, hey, I'm a lawyer. I didn't have to go take any science classes. You shake it up and it will dispose of the drugs. It will deactivate the drugs. And there's different types of disposal products out there that you can have at home. One deactivates it and one subjugates it to something else. And the deactivation is what we're working with with Deterra. Uh, We have a campaign. If you it starts tomorrow morning, it's going to go till May 10th. You can go on the Deterra webpage or our webpage, which is safeproject.us. In fact, Tom, if you want, I'll even get you some Deterra bags and you can distribute them out to your folks. But at the end of the day, if what we've tried to do is we've tried to say, if you're at home and you're there sitting around and you want it, Send us a note go on the web page. We will send you a free bag so you can dispose of those things, but I don't care There's lots of great ways to dispose of the drugs. Let's dispose of what's there That's the first thing I would say let's try to prevent that from happening or the uh, prevent some of the addiction from happening and then I would go to the other end of the spectrum is the second advice a piece of advice I would give And that's really that connection is so important and support is so important. So I would encourage families to talk about these things and to be supportive as best you can. And sometimes folks don't want to talk about these things, but you have to be aware and you have to be open and meet people where they are when they want to talk or when they don't want to talk. And I would I would just say that. It's really important to have open discussions because it's a disease it's it's nothing taboo to be an addiction and when you're in recovery you need the support of everyone and whether that's just playing a board game whether that's watching tv together or whether that's actually talking about um, other alternatives um, that's what you really have to do so i would reach out and communicate with those that are struggling and do what you can to help them and support them and not shun them because Yeah, you have the mistaken belief that they are addicts or junkies.
0: It's great advice, Jeff. And, you know, I think this pandemic, I've even seen it myself, it's, um, I hope, in a a sustainable way and long-lasting way, given us a a deeper sense of empathy um, for people who are struggling. And especially with something like this, as you said in the beginning, uh, we have to frame this conversation from the standpoint of it being a disease. And just as we would cure for anybody else who's struggling, um, whether it's cancer Uh, whether it's um, Alzheimer's, we're there for that person, and this is no different. Um, And so, especially at a time like this, it's an important conversation to have.
1: I I think you're right, Tom. And I want to be optimistic, uh, but I'm concerned. And I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I was not concerned. We lose about 70,000 Americans a year to something that we could fix. 70,000 Americans. That's a lot of people. And all we need to do is appreciate the fact that it is not anything but a disease and then work to try to prevent and try to support people that way. And what we also know is that there's a lot of things that will come with isolation and a lot of things that come with unemployment. And I think we were talking at some point earlier today about um, that we know that I think for every um percentage of unemployment there is historically, I think it's 3.5% increase in opioid deaths. Um, so there's a lot of work we need to do, but we as Americans have to step up to the plate and we have to accept where we are. And, and that's a struggle. We haven't yet. We've lost more people to opioid overdoses than we lost from every war from Vietnam to the present. And As a country, we really haven't done much. We've seen the deaths go down a little bit but I would venture to guess that some of the reasons the deaths have gone down a little bit is because uh, The prevalence of naloxone to save a life, but that hasn't taken care of the overdoses that are going up. So um, I I could have retired but that's why I'm here Tom and hopefully uh, hopefully we can turn people around and and be more productive.
0: I think so and I'll give you a lot of credit, Jeff, for doing this work because uh, we need more people like you. Um, But thanks for sharing your, your thoughts with us and for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate your time.